0: Our heart. Be with our brethren in uh, New York and other places, perhaps suffering from this uh, heat, but Lord, you know what you're doing. You bring the weather upon us. We look to you to see that all these things work out for your glory and our good. And we pray them in Jesus' name, amen. We're looking this morning at the joy of Christian community. What I want to show first is that Paul had a great appreciation for the church at Corinth. Well, for any of of the local churches, but we're studying from 1 Corinthians 1. Here's the way he says it in verse 4. I always thank God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. Have you ever said to someone, I'm so thankful for you? Maybe the person helped you through a difficult time in your life by being there as a friend when everyone else seemed nowhere to be found. Or maybe you just appreciated the way that person used his or her skills in a good and helpful way. So you you like their talent, you like their skills, their expertise, and you might have said, I'm thankful to know you, to have you be part of my life. It is good for us to be people who can recognize and appreciate the benefit of other people's lives as they interact with our own. Sometimes we are too self-absorbed and we cannot see beyond our own problems. This may sour us to the benefit of others. We're self-absorbed. All of this being true, I want you to observe how Paul expresses his appreciation of the Corinthian church. He does not say, he does not say, I am so thankful for you. That's not what the text says. That's what we would likely say. I'm so thankful for you. He does not suggest that thanks for them is simply because of them. No, no. Instead, he says, I thank God for you. And then he states his reason. Because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. In verse 5, he says more. For in him you have been enriched in every way. Verse 6. Because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. In verses 7 through 9, Paul rehearses the mercies of God to the Corinthians and what effects they had had on them. And he continues to talk about those things. No lack in spiritual gifts. No, not this church. Fully gifted. Kept strong and spiritual. Blameless to the day of Christ's appearing. Fellowship with his Son. These are things for which to be thankful. We observe here that Paul's appreciation of the Corinthian believers was not accolades for who and what they were by their own ingenuity and prowess, but for what they had become by the molding and the shaping and the intervention of God in their lives. It's a unique way of thinking about thankfulness. This church had been steeped in idolatry, as you know. But they had now come to worship the only God there is because grace was given to them in Christ Jesus. Verse 4. This is consistent with what Paul wrote to them in chapter 4, verse 7. For who makes you different from anyone else? Asks Paul. What do you have that you did not receive? Well, if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7. You see where he's coming from in terms of what he's thankful for in this church. One of the huge life-dominating sins of the Corinthian church was pride in time they even challenged Paul's authority as an apostle to instruct them and correct them in their wrong thinking can you imagine that <laughs> it was the apostle Paul who first preached the gospel to them apart from which none of them would have ever known god humanly speaking but they came to the point where they were beginning to question whether Paul had a right to be their teacher and instructor or bring correction to their thinking. They would not have known God. Again, humanly speaking, were it not for the ministry of the apostle. That's my point now, that the reason Paul was appreciative of the Corinthians was because God had invaded their lives with his grace. If there was anything that inflamed Paul's heart, It was to see God transform pagans into God-fearing, obedient servants of Jesus Christ. Since salvation is of God's doing from start to finish and not by man's own efforts, prayers, or the like, the thanks goes to God. I think we need to keep this in mind as we think of the Christian community and the people who touch our lives. All of us are sinners. We're all saved by grace. Well, if it's by grace, then we didn't earn it through our own goodness. Grace means we didn't deserve what we receive from God any more than any other person. The choice was God's alone. God means God's mean was to grant us grace. And when we say grace, we mean it's a gift. And a gift means you receive it, but you don't earn it. You don't work for it. It's not wages. Even in the spiritual sense. Well, I was such a good person (laughs) that God just had to repay me. No, no, no. Here it is from the text in Scripture, Ephesians 2. It is by grace you have been saved through faith This not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. Now my question this morning is, can you appreciate this work of grace in other people, the people of your Christian community? This is... Reasonable to expect. Despite all of the variations in our backgrounds, the circumstances by which we came into the same church family, we are all here by God's doing, not our own. The church is not a fraternity. We do not choose to join it on the basis of common interests and desires. We are drawn into God's family by His Spirit on the merit of Jesus Christ who is our head. Verse five says that the Corinthians were enriched in every way. What way? He goes on, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge. Wow. If you look into chapter two, you will discover God's analysis of the person devoid. What does he say about that person? Verse 4. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, you need the Holy Spirit to understand the things of the Spirit. By way of contrast, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 7, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Verse 10, but God has revealed it to us by his spirit. So there's the source of our wisdom. There's the source of knowledge. Likewise, when we consider the speech, Paul says of his own, my message, message, my preaching, so he's talking about his speaking, were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 4 and 5. He comes back to this point in verse 7 and following. We speak of God's secret wisdom, None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So what I'm saying here is as to both knowledge and speech, what we know, what we say, God through his spirit teaches us through his word the truth about eternal things, and he enables us to reiterate them to others. It's not like any other subject to be learned, wherein a person can just sit down and read a text or read a book and then learn. From Paul's ministry, we know that he confronted the intellectuals of his day, Mars Hill in Athens, the place where all of the philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers, met to talk about Uh, what's the latest chit-chat of the day? What's the latest philosophy of the day? And they would sit there and argue these things. And Paul said, I'm going to go up there. He was led by the Spirit to go to Mars Hill and to talk with the intellectuals. In our text, he says in chapter 2, verse 8, the rulers of this age. Yeah. Yeah. He talked with some of the rulers of this age. But rulers in all, though educated and influential in worldly knowledge, he said to them, None of the rulers of this age understood it, the gospel. For if they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I think of King Herod. I think of Caesar Augustus. I think of Governor Pontius Pilate. I think even of the religious rulers, Caiaphas, Ennis, the high priests, the Pharisees, the scribes. Oh, my. None of them recognized Jesus as God's son, the promised savior of sinners. Now, the evidence was clear enough. That was not the problem. Clear enough for even, Jesus said, even a child can understand, can hear and understand. And remember, he told his disciples, you need to humble yourself and become like a little child. One of the signs, brethren, that God's grace has come into our lives is that we begin to understand the things of God with a knowledge that enriches our lives. And changes our lives. Again chapter 2 verse 9 and following. Is it As it is written. No eye has seen. No ear has heard. No mind has conceived. What God has prepared for those who love him. But. God has revealed it to us. By his spirit. The spirit searches all things. Things, even the deep things of God. We were talking in the adult class this morning that it takes God to know God. In other words, it takes God to reveal God. Verse 11 and 12. Who among man knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? You're not mind readers, are you? You can't tell what I'm thinking. You can't tell what each other are thinking. We have to tell what we're thinking. Well, it is even more difficult when we come to knowing God. So in the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. So the starting point to know God is God himself. But what's the starting point of all unbelievers, including us, before we were saved? We don't have to guess. The psalmist tells us, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. (laughs) That's the starting point of an unbeliever. There's no God. At least not the God of the Bible. It goes on. Their deeds are vile, says the psalmist. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand. Any who seek God. Psalm 14, verse 1 and 2. The rest of the text shows that he understood. No, there, I'm looking. God's looking. There's none. None understand. And what about our speech? How has the grace of God changed what we say and how we say it? May I say that God's grace sanctifies, it mellows our speech. It makes us less critical, less abrasive, less judgmental, less vindictive, less accusatory, less know-it-all. Though admittedly, we are not as stupid concerning spiritual things as we once were. Paul says in Colossians 4, verse 6, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Well, what is he saying? He's saying gracious speech speech always tastes good. If you're gracious, it always comes across good. Or again, Peter says, For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. First Peter 3, verse 10. So what about me? What about you? Have you noticed any difference in your speech since your professed faith in Christ? And I'm not talking about profanity or obscenities which most of us discarded early on in our Christianity because they were such obvious, anti-Christ, anti-holiness ways of speaking. I am talking about gossip and backbiting and being mean-spirited in thought and word. Telling people off or always trying to correct them because you have a higher insight Or manipulate them because you know the right way to do things? I have people in my extended family that um, they have a right view on doing everything. You know what I'm talking about? People like that. You're cutting the turkey on Thanksgiving Day, and they're saying, no, 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 no. You're going about it all wrong. You don't do it that way. You do it this way. And they take the knife out of your hand, and they say, there you go this way, and then you cut that way. And, and it's that way in all of life. Everything, there's a right way to do something and a wrong way to do it. And oh, wonder of wonders. The right way to do things is always um, their way their way. That's just pride. And may I say that this is the test of your Christianity and mine. This is the proof of whether or not God's grace has touched our lives. We begin to realize the depth of our sin, the inadequacy of our self-righteousness, and our need for God's saving grace. Humility begins to set in, preferring others over ourselves. We become teachable, pliable, open to instruction from our church leaders without envy and jealousy. I think, if anything, we're reluctant to let our opinion known. And we don't feel we have to correct everyone and make them conform to our view. Now, that doesn't mean that we never give our opinion or voice our concern. But it does mean that we speak the truth in love. And prior to prior to speaking, we examine our own motives to make sure we're not just trying to force our views on others or to squeeze out from under the conviction of biblical truth for ourselves. You know, you can get your way and lose the day. The Corinthian believers benefited by the grace of God. They became wise in the spiritual discernment and Christ-like in their speech. Paul says so. And because of that, Paul was deeply appreciative. Because it was evidence that the Holy Spirit of God had really come into their lives and done something. Had changed them. So that's the first thing. Secondly, Paul was appreciative of the Corinthian believers, verse 6, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Boy, is that ever important in our day. We got everybody saying that they love God, they love Jesus. That's my testimony. I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian since I was 20 years old. Paul is saying that the testimony of the Corinthians was confirmed. Confirmed. Anybody can say, I love God. I know God. I'm saved. Now, at this juncture, we are not told how the testimony about Christ. Was confirmed in them. But as we study the remainder of the book of First Corinthians. It is evident that their lives were radically changed. They were idolaters. As were all the Greeks of that day. God to them consisted of the fabrication of their own thoughts. Well I think. Well my God. Does that sound familiar? My God would never. Send anybody. To hell. Have you heard that one in our day? When people say that to me, I say, well, it's probably true, but your God is not the God of the Bible. Your God doesn't exist, except in your imagination. Well, how can you say that to me? Who do you think you are? Oh, I'm nothing. But the Bible is God revealing himself to us. God telling us about himself. You can believe it or deny it, but it won't change the truth. We also discover some pretty horrific sins in the church of Corinth. Think about this. Division, schisms, factions, chapter 1 through 3. Imbibing the philosophy of the age, chapter 2. Incest among one of their church families, chapter 5. Sexual immorality, chapter 6. Also lawsuits against one another, chapter 6. Easy divorce, chapter 7. I'm reading through the list and you know what? Any one of these sins, any one of these sins could have brought this church down. We might think, wow, there's so much sin here. There's no way are these people true believers who love God just as it's not true. But Paul says that his testimony about Jesus was confirmed in them. In other words, they were Christians. But they needed help to straighten things out in their lives, as do we all. They had been so much a part of the pagan culture and the pagan thinking that it would take a while for the truths of the gospel to register and transform them into the character of Christ. This is the way it is with people saved out of raw paganism. You can go, oh, I'm so glad for my relatives. No, if your relatives live in America, they're living amidst raw paganism. That's our society. Oh, I know, it's whitewashed and colored over. The transformation from death to life, that's instantaneous. It's like throwing a light switch. But for that new life or new light to transform thinking and speech and actions, it takes time. And it is the task of more mature believers to bear with such people and not expect a one-year-old in Christ to display the spiritual maturity of a believer who has been walking with the Lord for 30 years. Have we forgotten so quickly how many people had to put up with our immaturity and greed and bad temper and immoral actions and thoughts? In his second letter, Paul explained, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Wow. Second Corinthians 10, verse 5. And in verse 7 of that chapter, he says, You're looking on the surface of things. Unfortunately, we do that a lot. But verse 5 is the reality. We have to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. You know, people can sometimes argue their position, though it is contrary to the teachings of the Bible. Or they may challenge the word of God in such a way as to make it appear that God's word is obedient. Only one of many options that we can choose from. But Paul says that we are not to tolerate that. Any well argued position that contradicts God is bogus, it is a false knowledge, it is born of pride. And our task is to make such thoughts obedient to Christ. What I want you to see is that we are to be hard on ourselves on ourselves in these assessments. We must adopt for ourselves as well as for others it's God's way or the highway. Even if it means we must change our minds and our direction, repentance must be there. People are oblivious to how much the culture shapes their thinking and viewpoints and orders their priorities. Do you know the world is never shy? It is never shy about espousing its views on morality, economics, health care, government, child rearing, what's just, what's unjust, what's right, what's wrong. Just listen to the news and the world will tell you what it is. So if you do not make your thoughts obedient to Christ, They won't be obedient to Christ. You'll be Christian in name only, a pagan in heart, with a religious veneer painted over. We need to start thinking as God would think, as Christ would have us think. How can you teach and lead others if you are not where you need to be spiritually? If you're mentoring another they have a right to look at your life and read its message. Could you say with Paul, be followers of me, even as I am of Christ? The Corinthians evidenced the grace of Christ in their lives by responding aright to the testimony Paul gave of Jesus. Their reception of Jesus did not immediately right all wrongs. But they entered, can I say it this way? They entered the path of righteousness. And God's grace prospered their walk. And so Paul was extremely thankful for these things. He didn't just look at all that they had yet to do to become more holy in their lives. He saw them where they were and what had transpired, and he was thankful. We should be too. Jesus says in Luke 15, verse 10, listen to this. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. One. We're looking for the crowds. We're looking for tremendous change in people's lives. And God's angels rejoice over just one who evidences repentance. It's a matter of perspective, isn't it? Luke 15, verse 10. Now, what are the results of God's grace on believers? Well, let me suggest some. Verse 7, he says to them that they do not lack any spiritual gift as you wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. You do not lack any spiritual gift. Now, he's talking to them as a church collectively and so on. Many of the gifts are listed for us in 1 Corinthians 12, you can read that on your own. Romans 12 would be another text. So think of those two 12s. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12. If you want to look about the gifts, they're there. But what we need to see in reference to today's study is that the Corinthian church did not lack any of the gifts. With the exception of those specific signed gifts apportioned to the apostles, neither do we lack any gift. Every local church which is not a synagogue of Satan, spoken about in Revelation 2 verse 9. Every local church is self-contained. I don't think we've always understood that. From those who have the gift of teaching, to others who are good administrators, to those who are gifted with helping people in need, whether you're an eye, a hand, a foot, whatever, All the parts of the body are assembled in such a way that each church displays a whole body with Christ as the head. And that's just Paul's way of saying that we can function as Christ's church till he comes. We are not. We are not in a state of limbo or suspended animation awaiting the right person to come from who knows where, before we can become a viable and functioning church. Now, it's true that some preachers in another church may be more gifted than me, or some administrator better than someone who sits on our board. That's always going to be the case. You and I will always find others who are more gifted. But it isn't your expertise or mine that makes us important to the work of God. It is your faithfulness and mine. I've been in Christian organizations, many of them through my career as a pastor. I've been in Christian organizations with very gifted people, but things were going nowhere because people were not faithful in the exercise of their gifts. They were sitting on their hands, so to speak. Or as Jesus taught in the parable of the talents, they had their gifts buried in the ground and weren't using them. One talent or five talents, that's not the issue. The point of order is how steady, how conscientious, Are you in using your skills for God? Brethren, we are a gifted church. Let us not be feeling sorry for ourselves because we do not garner the crowds. Let us not lament the fact that we have no gymnasium. We do not have a paved parking lot. I'm not saying give up these dreams. I think people of vision are needed to keep us focused on gospel outreach. The Corinthians lost nothing as a result of coming to Christ, nor have we. We have gained, we have not lost. You know how many churches with paid parking lots and gymnasiums are synagogues of Satan in this country? Is it the building, the estate that makes the church? Or is the church the people of God? So the first thing is that the Corinthian church did not lack any gift of ministry, nor do we. Secondly, they were assured, verse 8. God will keep you strong to the end so that you, you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 8. And just how will this be accomplished? Next verse, verse 9. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, that God is faithful. That's how we're going to make it. I want you to observe the parallelism here. Verse 7, we learn that the Corinthians did not lack any spiritual gifts as they awaited the return of Jesus Christ. They just needed to get busy and become faithful with what God had given them. Now, verse 8, Paul says that God will keep them strong on the day of Jesus Christ. How? Because God is faithful to those he has called into his family. So, God calls us to be faithful in our time in history and he has pledged himself to be faithful to us, he says, on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is that day? Well, that day is judgment day. Paul said to the Roman church, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2, verse 5. Now, granted, that was a certain element in the church. Judaizers that were causing all kinds of problems and dissension in the church. But to this Corinthian church... He says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him, for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Jesus' heart in John 5 verse 22, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but he has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Oh. Think of this. The judge of judgment day. Is Jesus Christ the one who had pledged himself to be faithful to his people on that day? Oh, wait a minute, think about this. The judge, this sounds like it's rigged. I have an actual in. With the judge. Hmm. How'd that happen? To the Philippi Church, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1 verse 4 through 6. That's not a statement of cooperative effort to be saved. It is a statement of mutual interaction as people already in fellowship with God and his son to advance the cause of God and the gospel throughout the world. I could say it this way. The Corinthian church started out weak and ended up strong. Praise God. In the beginning, their many sins were a drag upon them. Their growth in grace was halting slow, but it was steady. Here a little, there a little. The Holy Spirit weaned them off the sins that enslaved them and set their feet more solidly on the rock who is Jesus Christ. But their progress was not so much their perseverance, as it was God's. It's what God said to the Thessalonians: "May God Himself," or Paul wrote, "May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, body be kept blameless in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and He will." Do it. He will do it. Wow, I'm thankful that that verse is in the Bible. First Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. Jude, verse 1. Jesus Christ. It's been over two thousand years since the Corinthian church came to be. They waited patiently for the return of Jesus, but death overtook them all. No matter, no matter. They were still kept by Jesus Christ and loved by the Father. They could say with the Psalmist, even though I walk through the valley. Of the Lord forever. Psalm 23. That's a glorious prospect. Far better than the charge to the unbelieving. Just as a man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Hebrews 9 verse 27. Let's see faith in Christ, salvation now, and peace with God in the future, or resisting Christ, hating God, despising righteousness, and facing judgment to come. Which is going to be better for me? Oh, and John describes the reaction of the believing Excuse me, the unbelieving at Jesus' appearance. Notice that their attitude does not change. Doesn't change from what it is right now. Here it is. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Revelation 2, verse 16. We don't want to see Him but I don't want to have anything to do with him. Let the mountains cover us. Let us be hidden. There's nobody in hell that didn't want to be there. Now, they might have changed their mind when they got there. I don't know. But I know it's too late. Because the scripture says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't be like those stubborn, stiff-necked Israelites in the wilderness experience of whom the scripture says they all perished in the desert. But if you know the judge, uh, more importantly, if the judge is the one who took your guilt upon himself, if the judge is the one who paid the full penalty of the law against your sin, then the principle of double jeopardy kicks in, and we are told, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9. Or John writes it this way, this is love, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we are also to love one another. This is the joy of Christian community. We're saved individually, but we're drawn collectively by the saving grace of God. Now, our church, our little church, our history as a church, is never going to make it into the annals of Holy Scripture, like that of the Corinthian brethren. But I hope our legacy will be as spiritually beneficial to the people of our generation, to our children, to our grandchildren. In all likelihood, we will not be here when Jesus comes in all of his glory. But if we have been strong in the Lord and faithful, our testimony will be here. People driving by the little white building on Dryden Road will be able to say, you know, the people of that church had their problems. But one thing is certain, they knew God, and more importantly, God knew them. This is no small thing in a day and age when churches are leaving the faith and opting for a feel-good gospel, which is no good news at all. I want a better legacy for us, a better legacy, and such a legacy does not come automatically. It comes from hard work on our part, faithfulness in the small things, consistency and dedication without becoming weary and doing good. What a joy to be able to work together for the glory of the one who gave of himself that we might become his children. And this society is not exclusive. It's for all who call upon the Lord and will be saved. Praise the Lord. This is what he's doing. He's moving out of the world his people and bringing us into the Christian community of the church. The building, yeah, it's going to become Wood, hay, stubble, fire, ashes, dirt, it's all going to happen. But when the building's gone, God's people are going to be with him in glory, ruling over the nations, I might add, that did not receive the truth of the gospel when they had the opportunity. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of the scripture of the Christian community. Help us to be thankful. Whatever we are in terms of uh, being a church, yes, we're small. Yes, we sometimes struggle with the various problems that come into our families. We're not sinless, we're sinful. We're constantly in need of prayer for forgiveness. Constantly need to repent, change our ways. But Lord, we have the spirit by which we can change. And that's a great plus. There are many churches in our community today that are well gifted in other areas. They have nice buildings, gymnasiums, paved lots. This club, that club. But the spirit isn't there. God's spirit isn't there. The truth of the preached word is not there. Lord, keep us faithful. If we have to be small all our life and yet die faithful, that's a plus. I pray that you will help us to see that. And that doesn't mean we will not pray to become larger, stronger, better, with greater outreach and missions lo- and the like. We need that as well. But as we've been studying this morning, as you did with the Corinthian church, so you must do with us. You have to do it in and through us. I pray, Lord, that you will. In Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is 284 in the Brown Hymnal. Now, this is our communion Sunday, so we'll take a short break after we sing this hymn. And then, uh, when you hear the music being played, come back in and we'll celebrate the Lord's table together. You don't have to be a believer, uh, of, I mean, uh, you don't have to be a member of another church or whatever, or a member of this church to be part of the communion service, but you do have to be a believer in Christ. Uh, we are warned in Scripture not to even eat or drink of the table unless we know the Lord. And if we do that, we're eating and drinking judgment on ourselves. So let's stand together and sing. They'll know we are Christians by what? Our love. Our love. We are one in the Spirit we are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord and we pray that all trinity may one day be restored and they'll know we are Christians by our love. By our love yes they'll know we are Christians We will walk with each other, we'll walk hand in hand, we will walk with each other, we'll walk hand in hand, and together we'll spread the news that God is in our life, and they'll know we are Christians our love, by our love. Yes, thou will know we are Christians by our love. We will work with each other. We will work side by side. We will work with each other. We will work side by side. And we'll guard each one's dignity and say, Each one's pride, and they'll know We are Christians by our love By our love, yes, they'll know We are Christians by our love All praise to the Father From things things come And all praise to Christ Jesus His only And our praise to the Spirit who makes us. And they'll know we are Christians by our love. By our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Amen. We'll take a five minute break. When you hear the music, come back in for the Lord's table.